At the beginning of this project, when we started thinking about the concept of this podcast, Why Don't We Know?, I knew that misconduct inside the walls of college fraternities would need to be a part of our research. It's one of those sadly persistent stories. It always seems to be hovering. Even if just below the surface, it's never long before it rises up again, swallowing another unsuspecting family into the dark void of senseless heartbreak. When it does, we as a society are always left asking the same questions, rarely with satisfying answers. And there's no one reason for that, which is probably why it's been such an impossible problem to solve. It also makes for a frustrating story to tell. There's no easy fix, no simple solution. It's a complex web, an entanglement, of secrecy. The fraternity brothers were just not talking at all about the party. Put basically lies on their websites. Of privacy. They redacted all the names from the final investigative report. Of structure. For decades, national fraternities have used this structure to shield themselves from liability. And of pride. Very influential and powerful alumni base uh, that doesn't want their chapter to be gone for three to five years. It's too often a lethal combination. The fact is, there is no mechanism in the United States to force universities or fraternity organizations to record and make public instances of fraternity misconduct. Like many of the topics we will cover in this season of Why Don't We Know, this is a data desert. There is no database for this kind of thing. You, as a consumer, cannot do your due diligence and shop smart. And so what typically happens is that no one sees that a problem is brewing until it bubbles up and spills over the edge. And there is a death. The UC Irvine freshman was found unresponsive. A rape. Reports of two sexual assaults at a frat house. No mean death! No mean death! Or an intolerant attack. We are left at the mercy of the information that is given to us. And what our year-long investigation found is that information is woefully incomplete. We tried to get records from more than 75 of the largest public universities in the country to track how misconduct at Greek organizations is handled by universities. And while we were able to uncover some information, there's still a lot we don't know. Mostly what we found is that there are so many barriers to being an informed participant of the Greek system. It's a lesson learned in the most painful and tragic way for Daphne Boletsis. Uh, he was very exuberant, very athletic, always had a lot of friends, played sports all through school, uh, soccer, basketball, football, um, baseball. Mostly loved basketball, though. That was his real... Uh, he really loved that, and he was very sad that he never got more than about five, ten and a half. She loved the outdoors. He loved the beach. I do think that that, you know, geography was a pull for Santa Cruz for sure. You know, Santa Cruz is a very rural campus, and I think it felt kind of isolating, and he did not have all of the social life he would have hoped. 
He had friends in the dorm who did pledge their freshman year and was going to live his sophomore year with some guys that were in the fraternity. And I just think he wanted it, looked appealing to him. You know, I know that the pledge quarter, which was his first quarter of his sophomore year, was very hard on him. He did complain. He was very run ragged that quarter uh, in terms of demands on his time and frustrated and tired. I got a message that he was uh, in an ambulance on his way to the hospital. He'd fallen out a window and he was on his way to a trauma center at, at, uh, in San Jose. Well, two of his fraternity brothers met me at the hospital that night and they told me uh, very explicitly that it was not a fraternity party, that it was a pop-up bring your own booze party and that Alex must have been drunk and stumbled out a second story bathroom window. I just thought, you know, okay, he didn't stumble out this window, something happened. From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. It's been more than two years since Alex Boletsis fell from that window. You know, I, I still don't know exactly why or how he went from inside the bathroom uh, to the ground below, you know, and I, I may never know that. But I have learned a lot more about the party and the events of that evening and the fact that it was very much a fraternity party, uh, specifically to welcome that quarter's pledges. The crossover party is widely known as one of the three deadliest nights in the fraternity world. Alex, a sophomore at UC Santa Cruz, was crossing over into a leadership position that night. It was a party held at an apartment, functioning as an unofficial fraternity house. It was at a house that was occupied by six or seven fraternity members, including the president, um, and it was at a house that had been a huge problem all year long. In fact, paramedics had been called to that house seven times already that year, and the fraternity was coming off of two years of discipline for alcohol-related misconduct. According to the university's internal investigation, the chapter had long-standing rituals in place designed to break down and haze pledges. And those included vulgar slurs, physical hazing, alcohol hazing, and forced drug abuse. The night of Alex's fall, the investigation report reveals that Alex was given alcohol and cocaine, and when it was clear that he was in medical crisis, he was told to go to the bathroom to, quote, calm down. Yeah, he fell headfirst from a second-story window onto a concrete alley or asphalt alley. And he pretty much didn't break his fall except by his head. You know, like he didn't have uh, other broken bones or arms or anything. So he had massive, a massive head injury and a crushed spine. In the days that followed, his injuries were so severe 
that doctors couldn't really assess the full full extent extent. because he was not stable enough to go in an MRI machine for most of that time. And when he was finally stable enough to do that, and we saw the extent of the damage to both head and spine, um, and it seemed unlikely he'd ever not be vegetative. And if he was, he wouldn't have you know, communication or comprehension or vision or anything that might give him any quality of life, the decision was made to um, remove his ventilator. And he was very ventilator dependent. So it only, it took him about, I think, 40 minutes to pass away. The whole thing's horrifying. You know, all the cliches about a parent losing a child are very true. And to, you know, to be there and to witness it is, is hard and heartbreaking. Uh, But the truth is, once I really understood the ramifications of those MRIs, you know, I think he was, it was just modern science that kept him supposedly alive for those 18 days because he really probably shouldn't have survived. During those 18 days, while Daphne was busy keeping vigil over her dying son, The fraternity members were plenty busy, too. They posted a warning to their private Facebook group saying, quote, keep your effing mouth shut about the entire situation, unquote. Why don't we know reporter Jessica Curbelo explains. And they held an immediate mandatory in-person meeting where they documented what was said in the formal meeting minutes. Statements like, crucial not to provide information, the university does not have much information, I don't know is an intelligent answer, and we are being supported by our nationals. In fact, it seems like they were being supported by their nationals. It later came out that Theta Chi's national president contacted the university to declare that Alex's death was not connected to a chapter event, which we now know is not true because the university's own internal investigation found that the event was hosted by Theta Chi and Alex's death was the direct result of hazing. But the details of that report were kept secret. Still today, no member of the public has ever seen the full findings, not even Daphne Boletsis. And the only reason we know anything at all is because Daphne hired an attorney and filed a lawsuit. Before that, you would not be able to find any of those details about the hazing, the prior discipline, the attempt to cover up by the fraternity. In fact, when we first learned about Alex Boletsis, just googled his name. It was about a year and a half after his death. It was downright shocking. I couldn't find a single thing about how Alex died, or that it was related to hazing. There was zero mention of it on the internet. I couldn't even find mention of Alex's membership in a fraternity until I went digging and found his own Facebook. I remember we were on the phone with the family attorney, Doug Fearberg, someone who I've known well for many years because he's represented so many victims of fraternity misconduct. And he started telling us about Alex and how the story had really been buried. And after a few minutes, you jumped in, Jess, and you said, this seems really crazy, but it's like he's been wiped off the internet. While you guys were talking about his case, I was busy Googling and I barely found an acknowledgement that he died. I have never seen anything like this before. It seemed remarkable and almost impossible that in this day and age of almost omnipresent internet, that a student could die and there would be no trace of it. The fact is, 
that even though the university conducted a 10-month investigation and eventually banned Theta Chi, the university never publicly acknowledged what it found in its report that Alex Boletsis died because of hazing. The whole thing was pretty hush-hush. I felt Miss Alex really, like, really deeply. Just talked to one of Alex's non-fraternity friends. He said that Alex was one of the kindest people, that he stood up for people who were marginalized, not popular. That's one of the kindest people I've ever met. He always stood up for people that were kind of marginalized by society, you know? And he stood up for the people that weren't like, you know, quote unquote popular or whatever. He stood up for people who were being moved fast. Where were you when you first learned that Alex had passed away? I was at home visiting my grandma. Like, I was looking at my phone, I saw the newsroom, and I was like, holy shit. He did not deserve it. He, he did not deserve that at all. Like, and, it, and it's just really depressing to me, and it's so depressing to think about right now. Do you feel like students generally knew what happened to Alex? The general population? No. What about generally the people who knew Alex, or at least acquaintances with Alex? No. For an entire year, what you were told is that Alex had wandered off and fallen out of the window? Yeah, that's what I was told. And you found out from the news that that's not what happened? Yeah, I found out from the freaking news, yeah. It's tragedy and sadness heaped on tragedy and sadness. Doug Fearberg, the Boletzis family attorney, has been working on cases like this pretty much exclusively for the last 30 years. And so he's used to battling this kind of concealment. Well, it starts with young men going into a, an organization that at the outset talks about secrecy and the bonds of fraternity and the bonds of secrecy and the bonds to each other. And from that point on, you know, everyone's instructed to keep fraternity events and issues within the fraternity and not to rat out anyone else. So then when you have a circumstance where something's happened in the middle of the night or undercover or away from the general public, it becomes very difficult for people to sort of pull apart the individuals and get people to tell the truth because by the time police or emergency personnel arrive on this scene, individuals have already started, I mean, and as a general matter, started cleaning the area and um, getting their stories straight. And so then when the police arrive, they're facing a wall of secrecy. And if it's a serious tragedy that merits uh, the National Fraternity's involvement, they're usually on campus within a day or two of a significant tragedy. Again, identifying for the fraternity brothers that they're a source of, um, they're a resource for them to be talking to, but that things should be kept in the fraternity and people shouldn't be talking to the public or the press. Fearberg says the cover-up in the Boletsis case was particularly effective. It was kept under wraps. The family did not know that his death was being investigated by the university um, and did not know until they saw a copy of a report several months later that the investigative findings were absolutely damning and indicated that uh, Alex died as a result of severe hazing and severe misconduct. And if you check even the public record now, it's very difficult to find any information linking the fraternity of the fraternity brothers to Alex's death. After he died, there was a short little article that went only to his sub-college cowl announcing his death, saying not a word about the fraternity or the party or the circumstances. 
And following the investigation, nearly a year after his death, there was no sort of public press release. And if if I had not filed my lawsuit, you would Google Alex's name and and probably not get much more than his uh, local Santa Rosa newspaper obituary. Here's how the information finally came out. After Alex was taken off life support, Daphne's focus shifted from a bedside vigil to a fervent search for answers. I was still in the dark. I was still very confused. I didn't even know UC Santa Cruz was investigating. They were quickly in communication with the National Office of Theta Chi and not talking to me at all. In her desperation, she filed something called a Freedom of Information request to try to get more information. A Freedom of Information request, by law, gives the public the right to certain documents at public institutions, like a public university, like UC Santa Cruz. So I sent requests asking for records reflecting, you know, discipline interactions with this particular fraternity. And I sent them in October, and I got Uh, the first set of records at the very end of March, so almost six months. This is one of the realities of open records laws. In theory, these laws should make documents like this public and force transparency. But in reality, there are so many tactics institutions can use to help keep things from getting out, and delays are one of them. And it was only 57 pages. I mean, it wasn't like it was voluminous and it was only a partial response. So it took six months to get records, which in hindsight, you know, if you want to sue a public entity, which the University of California is, you have a six month claims statute of limitations. So it's very convenient for them that I had no information about the prior discipline of Theta Chi until that time frame had run. And when those records came in, they reflected uh, serious discipline in 2015 and 2016. Uh, 2015 Theta Chi had one year of disciplinary probation And in 2016, they had one year of suspension. So when Alex was pledging, they were just coming off a period of suspension. And you didn't know that. And it's likely he didn't know that, right? No, I, uh, yeah, no, I didn't know that. And um, the most heartbreaking thing in these records was a March 24, 2016 email from a UC Santa Cruz administrator in the context of discussing this discipline. And she said, I'm concerned there are no consequences for Theta Chi not completing any of the requirements of their probation. I'm particularly concerned that this is the chapter that has an unresolved complaint involving the possible administration of drugs. Is the university being negligent by allowing this chapter to move forward? And that discipline involved a underage kid needing an ambulance from a fraternity party. The answer was a resounding yes. It was a bad fraternity engaged in scary conduct. And yes, it was heartbreaking to see that uh, Santa Cruz knew and had an opportunity to, um, to take action that would have, you know, 
change. You, you know, Alex would probably still be here if that fraternity had been closed down like it should have been. UC Santa Cruz is far from the only university that has been accused of being too secretive with information about discipline. In fact, our year-long quest for these disciplinary records at major public universities shows that most schools are not making prior discipline public, even though they have the information. Most commonly, if you go searching online, what you'll see are statistics. Things like, the average GPA is higher than the non-Greek student GPA. Millions raised for charity each year. Hundreds of thousands of hours of community service. Stats like that. Rarely will you find much else. And even if you request records of discipline, say through a public records request like Daphne Boletsis did, at many of these institutions, you still won't get the information without paying a pretty hefty fee. Here's what happened when we asked nearly 80 different public universities across the country for records of discipline of Greek organizations. 25% provided the disciplinary records when we asked. 12% told us they had no information to share at all. Another 28% of universities said they have this information and they'd be happy to hand it over, as long as we pay for it. Some schools asked for a few hundred dollars, some asked for thousands of dollars to deliver this information. The biggest bill that we got was from the University of Maryland. They asked for $6,500. So I asked them, why so much money for records that so many other schools provided for free, or for much, much less? Their response was that they felt they calculated a fee that was in compliance with state law. Still, I suppose that information is better than the 25% of schools that said absolutely nothing in response to our request. They ignored us completely. So basically, what we get out of this is that more than half of universities told us, yeah, we have this information, but no, we're not inclined to make it easily available online. I think the issue is people don't want to create that kind of record because that kind of record easily available would be used against an institution in a lawsuit. Walter Kimbrough is the president of Dillard University in New Orleans. He's also worn a bunch of hats in the fraternity world. He was on the national board of directors for his own fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. He was the Greek life coordinator at Emory University. And so I started my career and been involved with associations, um, done trainings for NIC groups, uh, field consultant training, lots of workshops. Uh, and then I guess over the last I guess 20 years now or so, I've been an expert witness in hazing cases. So I've seen it as a campus person, as an expert witness, as a person, you know, working for national groups with commissions. So I think I've pretty much seen all the different angles. In fact, Kimbrough himself has tried to get some of the same information that we tried to get. We asked for similar kinds of data. I want to see all of your hazing cases over the last 10 years. And nobody has that. 
So they'll give you a ton of stuff that you have to try to go through or they, it, you know, they slow walk that to try to get some of that information for you. Uh, but people don't want to keep that kind of information because if you have that kind of information, then the case is made. You've had, you know, 100, you know, different violations in the last two years. So, you know, what are you doing wrong as a part of it? An institution might not be doing anything wrong, but they don't want to create that kind of record um, that would be used against them because national groups don't like to keep those records either. So I, I just think people don't want to, they just don't want to create a record that could be used against them legally. The data we collected really backs that up. Of the 80 schools we asked, only eight of them have this information online and available to look at. One of those schools is Clemson University, where a student named Tucker Hips died in 2014. When Hips died and his parents learned that there were an unprecedented number of misconduct violations in the weeks leading up to his death, they pushed for a new state law that would force these violations to go up in real time. It's called the Tucker Hips Transparency Act. It says that all universities in the state of South Carolina must provide a public report of any misconduct violations at Greek letter organizations. Jess, you talked to the director of fraternity and sorority life at Clemson. Yes, his name's Gary Weiser. Last summer when it became officially uh, a permanent law within South Carolina. And so it was one of the first states to uh, to make it a law to, to post uh, organizational conduct. And whatever it, it takes for, um, for people to make an informed decision about the organizations that they want to join, that is not a bad thing. He told me that he does believe that it has made Clemson safer. But I, I truly believe that, uh, you know, the period when we when we had um, a fourth of our of our IFC fraternities that were suspended for uh, hazing and risk management violations and students seeing the, that there are repercussions for uh, those actions, it really helped when we were working with students that, that they had that sense of urgency that, that a cultural change needed to exist, that needed to take place within, within fraternity story life in particular. That said, there are still some huge gaps of information. Like what? Well, for one, if you look at Clemson's disciplinary report online and you go to the date that Tucker Hibbs died, all you'll see is that on that date, Sigma Phi Epsilon, quote, engaged in activities that endangered the safety and health of new members. So you wouldn't know that someone actually died during those activities? Nope, you would not know that. And I asked Gary Weiser about this. Why does the public incident report not mention that someone passed away? I, I think you would need to talk to the Office of Community Ethical Standards about the, the language used in that report so they're the ones that manage that. But he deferred me to this other office at Clemson that handles the actual wording of these violations. And when I reached them via email, they didn't respond. I shared this scenario with Walter Kimbrough. It's so interesting because it's like, even when there's forced transparency, there's not even transparency. Right. No, it's, I mean, you know, just for a lot of reasons, some of them are political. People just don't want to deal with those issues, uh, you know. UC Santa Cruz, the school where Alex Boletsis died, they did send us one document. We asked for all of their disciplinary records, but all they shared was the one investigative report generated after Alex Boletsis died. When we pressed for other disciplinary records, they said... No records exist. What struck me most about their response wasn't what they shared, but how long it took for them to share it. We filed our public records request on October 31st, 2019, and got the response on June 8th, 2020. 
eight months later. So that's certainly not helpful if you're trying to decide what organization you might join. It's certainly not realistic that you'd have to wait eight months to get information that might help you make an informed decision. Now, put that into the context of the Baletsis case. Alex's mom, Daphne Baletsis, only found out after her son died that there were disciplinary problems brewing at Theta Chi. At UC Santa Cruz, nothing about that process has changed. A parent or student today could not go online and immediately find out what's happening. I went to the UC Santa Cruz Greek Life website just to see what they do have up there for prospective Greek students. It's a simple page with a date at the top, and it was last updated in July of 2018, just a few weeks after Alex Baletsis died. It says, why go Greek with a question mark? Greek letter organizations promote high academic achievement. Greek letter organizations strengthen leadership skills. Greek letter organizations encourage service. Then it says, but what about hazing? Question mark. Once a common tradition, hazing has been banned by all national, local, and international fraternal organizations and institutions of higher education. The University of California, Santa Cruz, strictly enforces this policy, and organizations found in violation are subject to immediate suspension of campus recognition and privileges, as well as negative legal repercussions. Well, that might be partly true. UC Santa Cruz did kick Theta Chi out after concluding its super-secret 10-month investigation. But evidence of all that other stuff? I did a follow-up record request to ask for evidence of these values that they put on the, the student organization website. Show me the philanthropy, the good works, the community service, and I got nothing. None of that's going on. We asked UC Santa Cruz for a response to our story, and they did address some of the issues that we've raised. A spokesman wrote in an email that the university never publicly linked Alex Boletz's death to the dismissal of the fraternity out of respect for the privacy of the family. He also said that the delay in communicating with Daphne Boletsis was due to the active investigation, and that generally speaking, when a campus organization violates the student code of conduct, the policy is to try to educate rather than apply sanctions. As for why it took eight months to turn over the report to us when we asked for it, he said simply, they tried to respond to requests in a timely manner. This is Why Don't We Know. We couldn't have made this podcast without research and reporting help from students at the University of Florida. You can help support them by making a donation to our Student Scholarship Fund. You can find the information on our website, www.whydon'twenow.org. The year before Alex Boletsis, another 18-year-old fraternity pledge died, this time at Louisiana State University. Max Groover had been put through a Phi Delta Theta fraternity hazing ritual called Bible study, where pledges had to chug alcohol if they gave the wrong answer to trivia questions. Groover's blood alcohol level was almost 0.5. It's a fatal dose for most people. Now, yesterday, LSU lost one of their own, an 18-year-old student pronounced dead after leaving this frat house. This was also attorney Doug Fearberg's case, and it's important to mention because of what Fearberg uncovered at LSU, once again, thanks to open records requests. 
the instances of fraternity hazing and often in dangerous circumstances were extremely frequent at the university. But the university's response to those incidents was at best lax and most accurately unserious, you know, not significant, irrelevant. The conduct just continued and individual organizations and students were given a pat on the back and nothing serious happened to them. And the converse was true for sororities where there were certain incidents that were by no means life-threatening, but yet they were responded to by LSU with the harshest means Why necessary. There's a lot of individuals that believe that boys will be boys and everything that's good in a male world uh, is not to be completely fooled around with. And fraternities have a very strong influence at certain campuses. They're very active alumni. They support the school programs actively. They should stay in close contact with the university, contribute to the university, and are regularly cheerleaders for the university long after they've left. It can't be understated how much alumni influence has hindered progress on this topic. Think about it. Universities are transient. Current members cycle out every four years, which should allow for fast, efficient change. But as alumni, Greeks give back approximately 75% of all money that is donated to universities. 75%. That number is huge. Big institutions don't want to deal with it because then you're, you're starting to deal with a, a very influential and powerful alumni base that doesn't want their chapter to be gone for three to five years because something happens. And I know for a fact that's held over the head of people. So you're, you're juggling a lot of different, you know, constituencies. When he said that, I immediately thought of a man named David Eastlick. What has it been about five years? <laughs> I know, right? I'm sorry. I first met David Eastlick in 2015, when a female student died after a party at the Rutgers University DKE fraternity house. Eastlick reached out to me. I was a CNN correspondent when he told me his story for the first time. He recounted it again here for this podcast. I was trying to um, discourage hazing because we had had a lawsuit that basically nailed us um, about a million dollars in damages and uh, almost put us out of business. Eastlick was the national president and CEO of Delta Kappa Epsilon, DKE. The fraternity is best known for having six United States presidents as members. But in 1998, David Eastlick got a call in the middle of the night that a pledge at the University of Washington named John LaDuca had hanged himself from a sprinkler pipe in his bedroom after a week-long initiation ceremony called Hell Week. And it was totally covered up by the undergraduates and the alumni that um, he'd been hazed within an inch of his life. And he'd been hazed by a Canadian uh, member of our board who was a lawyer who was also later um, arrested for uh, child abuse. And he had planned the entire initiation. And this thing was totally covered up for me. And Eastlick says that this was a turning point for him. And he wanted to implement change that would make sure it would never happen again. And we would bring up at every convention, you know, who was the, the person who had the most impact on the fraternity ever. And they, you know, people would say various presidents of the United States and stuff. And I would say, no, it was John LaDuca. But his one-man crusade was short-lived. I went to a birthday party for the chairman of our foundation. And uh, 
<clears throat> I went inside and they asked me to go outside and uh, a bunch of drunks basically who were on the board of directors uh, uh, said you're fired and go home and that was that was the end of me and the problem with alumni members of the fraternities is basically they were all hazed and they do remember all that hazing and it is you know it's now seen through a backward lens that you know oh it wasn't that fun although it was really you know not fun Eastlick now works as an expert witness for fraternity misconduct cases that end up in court. The more you watch these cases meander through the justice system, the more you realize the nature and relationship between the national fraternities, local chapters, and universities is a complicated legal entanglement that basically adds up to... No one ever has to take real responsibility for anything. For example, one school we sought records from, Utah State University, they told us, quote, Greek organizations are not located on campus, therefore USU does not have responsive records. But if you go to their Greek Life webpage, it's clear these are university-affiliated organizations. The university brags about their service, their academics, and leadership. That complicated relationship makes it easy for everyone else just to, like, wash their hands and say, not my problem. It does make it complicated. You know, universities, while they recognize fraternities, they seek to distance themselves from the harm they cause in recognition agreements or in other principles of law. And then you have national fraternities that have housing corporations that own the real estate that the chapter may operate out of. You have the chapter, which is, you know, at least considered wrongly by the national fraternity and it's engineered in this way. Um, to be a so-called separate legal entity. So uh, there are a lot of roadblocks that govern how the law is going to respond uh, to a particular incident on any given weekend. And from our perspective, the fraternities have managed it and engineered it this way. Um, in part to reduce the potential liability. So when you see local chapters shut down after misconduct, often that's not entirely honorable. It's an attempt to shield from litigation. And yet the national fraternity can come in afterwards and with the wave of a wand, make it disappear and then argue that the thing that may have been involved in causing this injury and death is no longer viable and around to be sued or sue. Um, and all of that, um, from a puppeteer perspective, is controlled by the national fraternity from the outset as to how the local chapter is set up. Has their argument up. worked so far? I mean, have they been successful? Have national fraternities been successful at shielding themselves by simply closing the local chapter and walking away? For decades, national fraternities have used this structure to shield themselves from liability. Daphne Boletsis wants to change that. Boletsis' case is the first case in this country ever to go after the actual engineered structure of the fraternity system from the way a national is incorporated to the manner in which it oversees and incorporates housing corporations, and then all the way down to the chapter level. These are false differences, and that each one of these organizations is part of the same organization and an alter ego of the fraternity organization in general and that the law should not recognize distinct differences between these three entities 
because to do so only fraudulently protects the organization itself. In the Beletsis lawsuit, we argue that all of that is a sham and a fraud. Since 1969, there has been at least one university hazing death each year in America. And in recent years, the numbers have been terribly high. Most of them are related to alcohol overdoses. Last year alone, at least seven students died because of fraternity misconduct. Seven students who were just like Alex Boletsis. Noah Domingo, 18 years old, died from alcohol poisoning on January 12, 2019, after Big Brother night at the University of California Irvine chapter of Sigma Alpha Epsilon. B. Castro, 19, died March 17, 2019, of alcohol poisoning, after allegedly being forced to drink during an initiation for the Cal State Fullerton chapter of Chi Sigma Phi. Sebastian Serafine Bazan, 18, went into cardiac arrest and later died on April 17, 2019, after a suspected hazing incident involving the University at Buffalo chapter of Sigma Pi. Antonio Cialis, 18, was found dead in a gorge on October 24, 2019, after a night of heavy drinking at a Christmas in October party hosted for new potential members by the Cornell University chapter of Phi Kappa Psi. Dylan Hernandez, 19, died on November 7, 2019, after he fell out of his bunk bed and fractured his skull. His blood alcohol level was about 0.23, after attending a party the night before held by the San Diego State University chapter of Phi Gamma Delta. Samuel Martinez, 19, died from alcohol poisoning on November 12, 2019. He was found in the fraternity house of the Washington State University chapter of Alpha Tau Omega. Marlon Jackson, 23, died on February 24, 2019, after falling asleep behind the wheel and crashing his car with three other passengers inside. He was allegedly sleep-deprived while pledging the Delaware State University chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi. And that is just in 2019. This is Why Don't We Know. Get updates and read more about our reporting by visiting our website, whydon'twenow.org. We're posting new stuff all the time to help people like you better understand Why Don't We Know. Five universities who we asked for records, they mentioned a law called FERPA. You're going to hear a lot about FERPA later on in the season. It's the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, and it dictates what records should be kept private. We're not going to attempt to detangle the confusing mess of FERPA in this episode. We're leaving that for a little later in the season. But let's just say FERPA is widely misinterpreted, and it's applied differently at different institutions. The chaotic nature of FERPA means that you'll often see different information released from school to school, even within the same state system. I called some of the schools that said they don't have data, and some told me that, yes, this information about discipline, it exists, but it's just not in a central place that ties it back to Greek letter organizations. So basically, the information lives in individual student conduct files, and that keeps it protected by FERPA. If it lived in a more straightforward place, like the organization file, those protections would not exist, and the information would be easier to find. In some respects, when they look at their state uh, privacy laws or the 
uh, federal privacy laws. Uh, they take a broad approach, uh, believing that any student personally identifiable information is to be kept confidential. And in many circumstances, there are ways of releasing critically important information about certain events or tragedies without violating state or federal law. And their policies should be in favor of doing that and doing it in a timely, uh, complete manner. FERPA is also the reason that Daphne Boletsis still has not seen the entirety of the investigative report into what happened to her son. The students' names have been redacted and... That is now the subject of a fight in the litigation to get the report unredacted, but still the Bledsoe family has not gotten the report unredacted to know who did what, when, and where. A university spokesperson told me it's partly for the protection of witnesses, but to the family, what it essentially means is the privacy interests of the people involved in their son's death outweighs the family's right to the full findings of the investigation. This is not that uncommon. In states where this information is required to be provided by law, names are still redacted. Reporter Jessica Corbello raised this with Clemson's Director of Fraternity and Sorority Life. Do you personally think the Tucker Hips Act is enough, legally speaking? I, I feel like hazing laws, in, in particular within the states, need to go after the individuals more. Um, because if the individuals are not held accountable and they're still allowed to be students at the university, um, I don't really feel like that goes far enough. Um, you can spin a fraternity or sorority or any type of student organization from a campus, but they're still... If, they, if, the, or if the individuals that were involved in the incident aren't held accountable, then they're still members of the campus community. And we need to, as a, in general, across the country, we need to do a better job at holding the individuals accountable. And I think Louisiana Here's is, uh, why he's right about individual accountability. It's possible that when the people who force feed pledges alcohol or don't call for help when someone is dying from alcohol poisoning, they're getting brought up on disciplinary charges and being punished. But it's also possible that they're not. It's entirely possible that the grand total of punishment for putting someone's life in danger is just a couple of years of probation for the fraternity. And that's it. The reality is we'll never really know. And we'll never know because colleges have constructed this off-the-book secret justice system that leaves behind very little paper trail. And it lets some people come out on the other end with a clean reputation. Because it's a secret. Either way, you have to consider that the majority of fraternity members in the United States are white. And so a lack of individual accountability highlights some racial disparities that are seldom discussed. Basically, what it boils down to is that often rich white kids are protected from criminal or near criminal actions that anyone else would obviously face consequence for. Oh, and we'll probably never know about it. It begs the question of why. If the mission is to keep these organizations safe, then why aren't the national chapters posting misconduct? Wouldn't that help all the people who are pledging for the right reasons make better decisions? I posed this question to Judd Horace. He's the president of the North American Interfraternity Council. Judd declined to do an interview with me to talk about the data we collected. 
In an email, his spokesperson told me that Horace supports a congressional bill that would force universities to make all of these misconduct records public. It's called the End All Hazing Act. But this bill has been stalled in a congressional committee for more than a year. So I asked him in an email, why not instead force the Greek letter organizations to post this information? After all, these are private organizations that are not bound by privacy laws like FERPA. His answer is that, Hazing and other misconduct are campus-wide issues that extend beyond fraternities, to athletics, to marching bands, and other student groups. And so he believes this bill would be the best resource for parents and students. David Eastlick, the former president of DKE, does not agree. You know, the, the problem with uh, the NIC and Judd Horace and all those people are basically they're trying to protect the industry. The schools don't necessarily have the information, and the, the fraternities do. Basically, the fraternities, are, you know, can tell you everything that you want to know. You want a national perspective. You want, you know, if somebody's going to join SAE or DEEK or whatever, they'd like to know. They've done anything, you know, to combat hazing. Have they had any significant hazing cases? And those records are totally available because the two insurance companies that insure the fraternities are both owned by the national fraternities. One is owned by seven national fraternities. The other one is the Fraternity Risk Management Trust. That That's owned by 37 fraternities and that has millions of dollars in it but they keep track of every incident and they keep you know the ones that don't get any attention and the ones that you know maybe don't even get to the school and they're the ones that are out there with the administrator settling each one of these cases they send somebody out um first thing to try to settle it they have 100 percent of this information available it could be disclosed it could be published and it you know it, it could be out there but of course you know, I don't think as an insurance company they're going to do it. And I know as, as a national, they don't want it. I mean, why not, though? You would think an insurance company would want to force better safe practices. Well, they're owned by the fraternities. <laughs> you know, one, the teams are favored. The focus of this podcast is secrecy in government. And so as you're listening to this podcast, you are going to hear us exploring a lot of different topics that relate back to reasons why we can't get certain information. This issue of Greek organization misconduct, it touches on so many of these issues. It touches on the faulty structures, the weak laws, cultural problems, a lack of data, and also something else that we sadly see repeated throughout the season, a lack of willingness to make meaningful progress. These are public institutions um, that have a serious uh, health problem on their campus. One of the single strongest predictors of binge drinking is fraternity membership. And the fact that uh, with so many students hurt or killed or sexually assaulted in this system, the idea that there would be hurdles to getting access to the um, accurate information about those risks uh, is on some level criminal. Um, or gross neglect because the universities haven't focused on it or, or they've decided that it's not important enough. And then you've got people looking at policy changes that are only half informed or one-third informed or certainly not fully informed because it is in fact true that fraternities are extremely dangerous on college campuses around the country and that the public would not have accurate information about that is a, a crying shame after this many decades of kids dying and getting hurt and sexually assaulted. 
that the universities don't want to have these types of blemishes on their record with respect to the alcohol, drug, misuse, and the Greek system. But again, these are conscious choices to keep the public in the dark. Imagine losing a kid and then running into these brick walls while you're just trying to figure out what happened. Well, I think, you know, you're right. You're hitting the nail on the head because any parent that loses a child is is fairly desperate to understand why and how that happened. And so to be met both with fraternity, not only stonewalling, but blatant dishonesty, lack of cooperation, uh, but also radio silence from the university, um, you know, it is very frustrating. You know, I don't know, is it just so valuable to be able to advertise that you have a Greek system? Is that a draw for kids that you that you put up with this kind of risky behavior? I, frankly, I was shocked. You know, I was shocked by what I read that it would be going on in this day and age with this age kids extreme, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic taunts in the hazing process, um, just drunk, drinking to a stupor, just stuff. I, you know, I guess, like I said, I was too naive. And I think for the fraternity to get away with this kind of conduct is morally repugnant. We're just willing to, uh, lose young people every year for what? And the fraternity sits back and collects $400 a quarter per member and takes no steps to make sure that the fraternity is operating in a safe way. So my goal is really simple. The the alternative, doing nothing, was abhorrent to me. I would like to see the fraternity um, change. I'd like to see fraternity culture change. And that's my goal. Next time. 50 plus years into the Freedom of Information Act, we are still experiencing agencies that consider right to know to be, you know, right to N-O. We take a step back and geek out a little bit about our own fact-finding experience. It's not in their best interest to give it out information that they don't want out. So it's very convenient to understaff that office. Uh, and so they kind of create a bubble of kind of secrecy around them, whether they intend to or not, because they don't want people to know. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam. Jessica Curbello is the main reporter. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. In addition, Kelly Hayes and Lexi Fletcher filed public records requests for this episode. This episode was edited by Luke Barrientos and James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information about this episode, visit www.whydontweknow.org.